Hello, and welcome back to another edition of EdChoice Chats. This is Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice. And today is a podcast in part of my series, What's Up? <laughs> what's up with Mike McShane? Again, not people concerned about my well-being, wanting to know what's going on or my whereabouts. But rather, this is a podcast series where I interview interesting, inspiring, thought-provoking people in education. And we talk about a whole variety of things. Maybe they work in policy, or they are thinkers, or they're school leaders. And we just try and talk, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, understand their world and help people understand the world of education in America in 2022 a little bit better. On the podcast today, I'm interviewing Ian Rowe. Ian Rowe is a super fascinating person. I wish we had much more time to talk because he has had his finger in many pies. A very, very brief background for him. He got his start in education in the early 90s as a Teach for America teacher, but he was in the USA Freedom Corps and the White House back at the sort of turn of the century, 2002, 2003. He actually worked for years for MTV. He was senior vice president of strategic partnerships and public affairs. He then went from there to the Gates Foundation. And since then, he has been a school founder and a school leader. He was the CEO of Public Prep, a charter school network in New York City for about a decade. And just recently, and we'll talk a little bit about this on the podcast today, he is launching a new set of charter schools called the Vertex Partnership Academies. And while we talk a bit about that, the big sort of what's up topic for today is really about his new book. So he has a new book out, which everyone should check out, highly recommend. It's called Agency, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ian Rowe. So Ian, you have a new book out entitled Agency, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. Well, here on the What's Up podcast, we like to get straight to brass tacks. So I got to know, what is your four-point plan? Wow. Well, like right to it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, in setting up the four-point plan, let me just say that, you know, I've had the pleasure to work with kids now for many years throughout my time running public charter schools in the Bronx and Manhattan, and even before that, in different aspects, actually, working at MTV, Teach for America, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And through that whole process, I think I've observed and learned a lot about what really drives young people to flourish or not, right? And especially in the last 10 years, you know, running public charter schools, like the reason I run schools is I want kids to know that they can do hard things, right? That they can overcome barriers and that there are pathways, there are pathways to success, even if they might find themselves in situations that are challenging, right? But over the last couple of years, I've sensed this acceleration of a narrative that impedes young people's ability to believe that they can do hard things, right? This kind of victimhood narrative, which I can go to in more detail, this kind of blame the system or blame the victim where blame the system is, you know, if you're not successful, if you're not achieving the American dream, that's because America itself is this oppressive nation right? Based on your race, your class, your gender, systems are rigged against you. You know, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. There's 
you know, capitalism itself is evil. And these systems are so powerful that you are powerless as a young person, right? And it's like, unless there's a massive government intervention, you kind of got to wait for someone else to solve your problem. But on the other side is what I call blame the victim, where again, if you're not successful, it's not America that's the problem. You're the problem, right? You need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're the architect of your own failure. Somehow you're responsible for the fact that you're not successful. Ignoring, you know, when kids are potentially born into an unstable family or don't have a personal faith commitment or faith community around them or haven't had access to school choice, it's really hard to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, right? So those two narratives, blame the system and blame the victim, in my view, add up to a singular lie that really hurts young people. And rather than just shout in the rain, <laughs> I felt I needed to put forward empowering alternative. And that's where my four-point plan really kicks in. And it starts off with this definition of agency, where agency has been a concept for eons, but I felt we needed to sort of reanimate the word and almost create a new definition, where I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So if you think of agency as a vector, like velocity, right? Where velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So if every young person has free will, has the ability to make decisions, the question is, where does the ability to become morally discerning come from? And I've put forth free, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. And we can go in each one, but those four pillars as part of my four-point plan, if more young people were to embrace these pillars of agency, I think we'd usher in a whole new era where young people felt that they could lead a self-determined life, that they could have the epic life that is within their grasp. And so that's why I wrote my book. Well, I think it's so interesting you bringing up this idea of freedom paired with morality, moral discernment, et cetera. I think it's such a fascinating way of looking at it. And obviously, I'm an education guy. You're an education guy. So I think about education's role in this. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, if you go back and read the kind of writings of the founding fathers or from the Enlightenment or others, they were so concerned with this idea of like, hey... <laughs> If we're going to have a free country and like kings and despots aren't going to make our decisions for us, if we don't have a kind of moral population or if we yeah. don't take time in this, this thing's all going to go south. Now, it's true that that's probably true in any system, right? If you have a socialist system and it's run by evil people, it's just centrally planned evil. But I'm fascinated when you think of education's role in shaping that morality. Again, I think. A relatively uncontroversial statement, though I've seen you talk before. <laughs> and, and as I'm listening, I'm like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And that wasn't necessarily shared in every room we were in together. But <laughs> right. you know, I'm fascinated you think about education's role in shaping that kind of moral discernment yeah. and helping children understand how to use their freedom appropriately. 
Yeah, no, I think it's actually a fascinating question because when you bring up the founders, it is true that there was a huge focus on this idea that freedom actually requires constraints. You know, in order to be a self-governing free society, we actually need individuals who have the ability to self-govern. It's this whole idea of temperance and self-regulation. So when you do look at totalitarian countries, I mean, you say, yeah, I guess this idea exists everywhere else. But in totalitarian countries, the presumption is that the governance or the quote unquote morality is coming from the state top down, completely dictating to you what is in and what is out in terms of behavior, what is right and what is wrong. America works on a very different premise, which is that it's really much more from the bottom up that this idea of like, you're free. You're a human being that's free. However, and this is the key part of agency, agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. That's right? super interesting. Right? So we've all got free will, but there are a lot of folks with free will to do a lot of bad things, right? And so that's why the role of these mediating institutions, and I've defined them as family, religion, education. Then if you have those three, entrepreneurship is kind of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And so education is one of the pillars. And it's important to note that I didn't, I didn't create a one-point plan called E. I called a four-point plan <laughs> <laughs> called free <laughs> because sometimes I think there's so much onus put on schools to be the shaper of character and moral development of kids, which of course it is. But that burden can't fully fall on the institution of you know, schools themselves. But to your point, absolutely, anyone who thinks that schools aren't playing a role in shaping the ability of young people to be self-governing or to have self-control is completely out to lunch. I mean, and you could mix this up into character formation, moral formation. The whole point is, let's be deliberate about it. You know, I'm launching Vertex Partnership Academies, this new international baccalaureate school, which is an extension of the BRIA and public prep charter schools. And it's all organized around the four cardinal virtues, right? Because those four cardinal virtues are the basis for all other virtues. And that'll be weaved throughout the school day in our curriculum. We'll have literature that exemplifies these virtues. And it's one of the ways we think we are going to try and inculcate these beliefs and attitudes and behaviors into kids. But again, I'll just caution that we play one element. We need strong families, strong faith commitments as well to also help kids develop this ability to be self-governing. When you're talking about this now, in some ways, I think you were almost born like 3,000 years too late. Because <laughs> when I hear you speak, and again, the cardinal virtues, going back, you sound like kind of one of the ancient philosophers who talked about freedom. I mean, it's really interesting because we have this sort of American conception of freedom oftentimes that, you know, you're free to do whatever, you know, I right. ever watched that show. We're on horseback and yeah. our hair is flowing behind us. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, was it Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation said something, you know, if I want to eat two steaks and drink six whiskeys and do whatever, I can do that because I'm American. But the kind of ancient right. conception of freedom was actually freedom over oneself that a free person was one who had conquered their kind of baser desires. And so it's like when I'm hearing you talking, I'm just like, yeah, this was a classical conception of freedom was that before one could be free kind of externally, 
they had to be free internally. They had to master their greed and their sloth and their avarice and all of these, all of these things. And by pursuing things like the cardinal virtues. And again, what's so interesting about what you're saying, first of all, I, I take that as a compliment to be, you know, <laughs> 3,000 years too late. The fundamental point, like the nugget of gold in what you just said, is that this has to happen every time. Like every generation has to go through the same process, right? So it's not as if, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we figured out self-regulation, self-governance like 100 years ago. Well, actually, guess what? This new generation that's being born right now without us actually having a deliberate approach to reinstill these same ideas, we've lost the society that we've been able to hold on to. That's why education is so important. That's why, again, I think concepts like agency, it's almost as if we have to refresh them every couple of generations before we get too complacent in our ability to self-govern. Because as our society starts to fray apart, we might start to think, oh my goodness, we need some artificial interventions to try and control human behavior when we've actually lost sight of the core role of the mediating institutions, which is what we rely on in the first place. And it's very difficult to replace. And I think of your free F, the first one, I think is appropriate to be first because it's probably the first, it is the first mediating institution that any human encounters, and that is family. So Talk about family's role in yes. developing agency. Yeah, and this one's a little controversial because when I write about family, I'm speaking to young people. I'm speaking to the rising generation, you know, kids or, you know, young adults, 15 to 24. And it's not about the family that you're from. It's about the family that you're going to form. I have many, many kids in the schools I lead, you know, in the Bronx where, you know, kids have been born into tough situations and also kids born into married two-parent households, right? But I've definitely seen situations in which the family that you're from can be both supportive as well as a challenge in your development. But even still, you know, whatever the situation that you're in doesn't dictate what you have to create for your own life. So that's one of the reasons like teaching things like the success sequence in schools, I think is so important. And the success sequences, you know, maybe your viewers might know this data, but basically if a kid finishes just their high school degree, earns a full-time job of any kind, just so they learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if they ultimately have children, but got married first, that series of decisions, 97% of the people who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. And the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. And it's not a guarantee because it's not 100%, it's 97%. And believe me, I know lots of single parents who would crawl through broken glass for their kids and they did amazing things. And I also know kids who've been raised in dysfunctional married to parent households. So life is not a guarantee, but the data is overwhelming. And so that first F in free establishing family, it's the most proximate mediating institution. Running schools, I remember when I first started running schools back in 2010, I ran a network that went from kindergarten through fifth grade. Look, a lot of stuff happens before a kid is five years old, right? And a lot of that preschool activity or environment is determined by the strength and stability of the family that you're raised in. And so if we're really committed to improving the outcomes of kids, we have to think about it in a multi-generational fashion, right? We have to think about the kids who are here today, 
plus helping them influence the decisions they are going to make about the type of family they form and when they form it. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, in the past 15, 20 years of a lot of the kind of quote unquote education reform movement, there was a big push. I think the term has gone away a bit now, but sort of no excuses schools. And part of that was, I think, a misunderstood part because it was as much talking about no excuses on the part of the adults as it was yep. a part of the kids. And people tended to focus on thinking about part of the kids. But I will be honest with you, there was part of it that always sat a little uneasy with me for some of the points that you just raised, which is this kind of idea that schools, the belief is that there should be no excuses in the adults there, that sort of no matter what happens to kids outside of schools, these schools should be able to quote unquote fix that or should be able yeah. to thrive. Yeah. And I'm kind of uneasy about that. How do you feel about that, thinking about it? Because you want to hold schools accountable and you want them to do everything that they can, but you also have to be kind of realistic. Yep. I don't know. How do you think through that? Well, I mean, Mike, you're now entering the landmine territory, right? Look, schools can't do everything. And I had this epiphany moment, and I write about this in the book, and literally it happened on July 11th. 2016 at about 4 p.m., <laughs> you know, near 149th Street in the South Bronx. And I had been running my network of public charter schools. I was about six years in. We had just made a decision. Our demand in our schools was really high. We accepted maybe two or 300 kids a year, but then we had about nearly 5,000 kids on our wait list, especially in the Bronx. You know, we're in the Bronx single digit percent of kids are graduating from high school ready for college, right? And it's just unbelievable. So we moved our headquarters from Tribeca in Manhattan to near 149th Street, because that's where all of our future schools were going to open. And, you know, when we moved, there was a needle exchange right on the corner. We had drug addicts walking by our front office door. But like, that's where our kids were. That's where, you know, they deserve great schools too, right? So to acclimate ourselves to the neighborhood, we decided to go on a walking tour. And that's when I had this epiphany moment at 4 p.m. on July 11, 2016, because as we were walking, we saw in the distance a group of adults around this truck, and they were really excited that it was there. And as we got closer, I saw graffiti lettering on the side of the truck, and it said, who's your daddy? And I was like, wait, what is that? Because literally, it's almost like the ice cream truck. The adults around it were really excited. It's like similar to seeing kids seeing the ice cream truck. Well, it turned out the Who's Your Daddy truck was a mobile DNA testing center where low-income folks were spending somewhere between 350 to 500 bucks to answer questions like, could you be my sister? Are you my father? Really deep questions about identity. Imagine not knowing the answer to those questions that I just posed. And the founder, Jared Rosenthal, who was an entrepreneur, he saw a market need and there was enough demand for a second truck. And VH1 actually had a reality show on the truck called Swab Stories, <laughs> right? Because this is all kind of entertainment. They did DNA swabbing and this was almost entertainment. And yet I saw that and... I was like, wow, you know, I'm trying to run great schools, but I feel like running schools is necessary, but not sufficient. When I saw, and I learned that in this particular area of the Bronx, 
the non-marital birth rate was 85%. We have to play some role in helping kids understand that their reality can be different. So, you know, I had maybe the no excuses kind of mentality that you just described, but we're not Superman, nor it should be that schools have the expectation that you've got to be Superman to take care of every single issue. So the whole no excuses thing is a level of hubris that I think many of us in the sector recognized. Like maybe at the time it was the right talking point because we were coming in as, you know, we're coming in, the unions are giving excuses, everybody else is giving excuses, but we are charter schools, we're no excuses, we're going to get it done. And I think it's a false hubris. There is an important role for schools, obviously, but we can't do everything. And that was my epiphany moment for me to recognize that, you know, again, we don't even get kids till five years old. So thankfully, you know, now there's pre-K and other things, but we just have to be honest about what all the other factors are that really drive kids flourishing, where schools play an important singular role, but there are others to be affected as well. Well, if that was full of landmines, the R in free, <laughs> let's just let's just keep tiptoeing through this. So the R is religion. So I'd love yeah. to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, so I just described the success sequence, right? Which is a very sort of economic framework. You know, you finish high school, get a job, you know, get married and have a kid. And economically, that's, you know, has a certain predictive power in terms of your financial future. But again, like I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So there are a whole bunch of factors that drive decision-making, right? Certainly one, economics is certainly, you know, if I can earn a hundred bucks to do this, I'm going to go do it, you know? But if you earn a hundred bucks doing something that, you know, make you knock over an old lady to get her purse, that's not good, right? So there have to be lots of different things that you think about or a student or a young person thinks about. And there's just, morality is important. And I feel like somehow in our society, we've gotten very fearful of talking about these things, particularly around religion. And I just thought I would be doing myself a disservice because frankly, I was raised in a faith-based environment. You know, my parents, you know, they surrounded us with love. I mean, my parents were married for 48 years before my dad passed away. So there were a lot of elements that made us feel very secure as a family and as a young person, always knowing that they had my back. But I can't deny the power of being part of a faith community. And I put a lot of data in the book. If you look at what's happening with young people today, the high levels of loneliness, depression, alienation, you know, all this time spent on social media, and yet kids feel alone. When you look at the data for kids who have a personal faith commitment in their own life, dramatically different outcomes, lower levels of loneliness, lower levels of alienation, lower levels of depression. They're part of real world rituals, right? With communities, with people that love them. And again, I don't think anything I'm saying is rocket science. And by the way, there are lots of kids in the United States that have a personal faith commitment. They don't need Ian Rowe to write a book to say, this is important. But unfortunately, there's a rising number of kids who are abandoning or never even adopting personal faith commitment in their own life. And so, yeah, I decided to go there. I also talk about, by the way, the role of religious institutions in running schools, because that's another component. 
the free, the R and free is both geared towards individual kids to understand the benefits of religion and faith, while also trying to encourage more religious institutions to become more relevant in the lives of young people. You see a lot of the social issues today, where is the church? And again, that's a blanket statement. There are lots of faith leaders who are engaged. But when you look back at the civil rights movement in the 60s, I mean, faith-based leaders were at the forefront. And I think there's an opportunity for a resurgence there. And then last thing, the Supreme Court decision most recently is making it now somewhat easier for religious institutions to become more of a school choice environment for parents. And I think that's really powerful. It's so funny. You know, you were talking about earlier having to teach a new generation things, you know, every time a new crop of kids comes up. And one of the funny things about religion and other these is these are like lessons that have been accumulated over a long period of time. So it's like there's actually a store of this stuff that we can draw from. But I think it, it was just while you were speaking, I was thinking about how people have this kind of religious impulse, the rituals that you talked about and those that help bring meaning and sense to people's lives. And it's kind of one of those things that if you're not religious or you don't have some religious tradition, you'll try and find it somewhere else. And uh -huh. many of those things that we've replaced, some of them are probably harmless. I laugh because for years I did CrossFit. And I don't know if you're familiar with the workout. You know, it's this workout program thing that's been around for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years now or whatever. But the hilarious thing to me was I did a few of these classes and I remember telling my wife, I'm Catholic, you know, this is mass, right? Because it's like an hour long, it's like broken up into parts, a bunch of like there are rituals, there's language, there's even all these workouts that are named after like soldiers and sailors who had passed away. And so they're like saints and there's like a hierarchy. And I was like, you know, there's like all these terms of art that people use in there. I'm like, you know, this is basically kind of like church for non-religious people because people look for these rituals and people look for people to look up to and they look for order and they look for explanations like, well, why things are the way that they are. And it's really, you know, obviously I'm biased as a religious person, but, you know, you think other ways in which maybe people replacing church with gym isn't the worst way of doing it, but a lot of other people have chosen to worship politics or they've chosen to worship yeah. money or they've chosen. Yeah. And when that becomes your religion, bad things happen. Mike, I think that's very prescient. I mean, I think it's Karl Marx, I think, who said, religion is the opiate of the people. If God didn't exist, people would create one. I think that's the quote. I think actually what is happening is that there is a big replacement going on. And maybe it's not Jim, but when you look at things like woke racism or woke ideology, or critical race theory. I mean, John McWhorter writes about this in his book, and he treats some of these beliefs around anti-racism as a new religion that young people are substituting personal faith commitment. Because guess what? You do become part of a larger community. Like you do become part of, you know, an ideology where they're true believers. And if you don't sign up, like you're excommunicated from the community. So there's a lot of perverse incentives to feed that kind of organic desire for a spiritual faith, but to feed it with some things that are kind of perverse. So I, I don't think your analogy is far off at all. I mean, I wish it were into gym and religion. But again, part of the reason I put up free, and by the way, it's F-R-E-E. -E. It's like the family first, then religion, then education, in terms of like your sort of organic development. 
and again, I think there's a fear of talking about it. I, I've been doing a lot of presentations on college campuses, and I ask, you know, how many of you have a personal faith commitment? And it's very tentative. You know, it's just very interesting. Like you just said, I'm Catholic very easily, and I presume you're proud of that. But even people with a faith commitment, particularly young people, are not always sure, even if they embrace it themselves, they're not sure if they're going to be accepted in their particular community. And I want to change that. And I want it to be celebrated that this is an important part of how you're going to be as a person going forward. I think it's very interesting that, yeah, the types of things that you can say that you believe in, or even like the ritualistic, you know, someone says, you know, I like micro dose LSD to get to the, oh, that's super interesting. That's wonderful. But if you're just like, I'm a Presbyterian, people are like, whoa, who's this guy? <laughs> it's such a strange, Great. right? It's like such a strange way of looking at things. I mean, this is a complete non sequitur, but I read that, I mean, this is completely not related to religion, but it's just this point of, you know, what it's okay to say. So Beyonce, she just released a new album, right? Which is like, oh my God, Beyonce's really, you know, like, lead story on CNN. I'm like, hey, dude, can we talk about the fact that only 30% of kids are reading? Okay, so, <laughs> you know, so Beyonce releases her first album in X number of years, right? And as you might imagine, some of the lyrics are very risque, very sexualized, the videos, all of it, right? But there's evidently a line in one of her songs where she says something about a spaz, which is a term that, you know, has been used in the past around people with mental health issues, and so after there's some initial outrage, she says, I think she's going to replace that word. But meanwhile, leave all the other stuff. <laughs> I think I thought I saw, I think Lizzo got in trouble for a similar thing. People can go and Google it themselves. The line that replaced it, from my vantage point, it's like, it's not clear to me that that's any less offensive. It's just sort of offensive in a different direction. But yes, there are certain ways in which folks take particular offense to things. And yeah, and you know, and, and I think, honestly, there's a role for the R there. Like, there's got to be some kind of moral code. And again, this is back to the fundamental point that we talked about earlier. Free will. I mean, we can say all sorts of things, but we as a society have to come to terms with what do we think are the reasonable way to have an inherent respect and dignity for all. And so here's one of the leading female artists of all times. I mean, again, she's an incredible example of female empowerment. So, you know, you're probably going to get all sorts of callers saying, no, Beyonce's great. She's great. But you can't deny the over-sexualization, particularly of young girls in our society. And part of that is fueled by some of these images that are seen. And again, try to bring this back down to free. A personal faith commitment is just one of those things that you start to develop where you almost create a kind of cocoon around yourself. Like this is what Yuri Bronfenbrenner, you know, the bioecological development theory, says that there are lots of forces that are going to compete for the attention of young people. But it's these local institutions that help give you the armor, give you the cocoon. So whether it's, you know, mass media or popular culture trying to send all these images around who you should be as a young person, well, you know, your family, your personal faith commitment and your school are letting you know that it's okay to be who you are. And we're the institutions that are going to help you cultivate your own sense of personal agency. Anyway, so it's a long digression. Well, no, I think it's a really important one too, because you had brought up some of the woke stuff and others. And you see people, even if someone as big as Beyonce can be at risk of something like quote unquote being canceled because of right. these things. 
one of the things that faith also brings into our lives are concepts of like sin and redemption and that human beings yeah. are not necessarily defined by their sins. So what was in Lizzo's lyrics or what was in Beyonce's lyrics, you know, is a sin. Well, taking it outside of sort of an yeah, actual faith but tradition saying that, but saying you did something wrong that hurt people. Okay, so then what do you do? Right. And most religious traditions give us some kind of framework to admit our faults, seek sort of apology, restitution, whatever, and then be a member in good standing again. So right. it gives us a path so that we're not constantly defined by our sins. But that's another thing that it seems like in so many of these controversies and others, because we don't have those conceptions of faith or that language around faith, we don't have a means of like welcoming people back into our communities mm -hmm. after they've made a mistake. And I think the next E is education. And I think that that's such an important part of education, right? Because kids make mistakes all the time. Anybody who's ever been a teacher knows not because they're bad kids or whatever, but because they don't have impulse control yet. And right. if you don't have some means of A, correcting the behavior that people have, but then B, giving them a path to come back, you're not actually helping anybody. So that was my sort of ham-fisted yeah, yeah. segue to talk about, Ian, the role of education. We've touched on this a little bit, but how you see education playing a role in all of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, fundamentally, education, I mean, part of it is just choice and educational freedom. Kids who are growing up in middle and upper class communities, generally, their parents are in a situation where they can choose a great school for their kid. And they're off to the races. So that may mean being able to move to a nice suburb and going to a great public school or getting the resources for a, a great private school or going to a religious school. And so a lot of the E starts off with, do you even have the ability to go to a school that is able to give you that uplift? And for millions and millions of kids, that is not the situation. Again, uh, you know, when I was running a public prep, we had nearly 5,000 kids on our wait list. And in New York City in 2019, that's the last year for data being available, there were 81,000 families that applied for public charter schools for only about 33,000 seats, right? And these are almost all low-income families who are just desperate for their kids to have an equal shot. So the first thing in E is just, can we have educational freedom? Can the most vulnerable kids in our society be given a real shot? And look, I'm a product of New York City public schools, K to 12. I'm a huge believer in public education. But I'm also a huge believer in not forcing a kid who's seven years old to somehow wait for their local school system to get their act together, right? And maybe actually in order for that local school system to get their act together, they need a competing force, which is a good school that can either provide best practice or put pressure on them to change the way that they've been running schools. So a lot of it starts there, right? But then within school, I mean, school is where joy can happen. You're reading literature about where you live, as well as places that you could never even fathom ever living. And yet it's all coming into your brain. Again, it's not the only place because you do social formation in a faith community as well as home, but school is undeniable. And it's the first real public function that has the responsibility to take all of its kids and create this common pathway. You know, Edie Hirsch writes a lot about core body of knowledge, 
that in any society, if you know what that core body of knowledge is, you have the ability to flourish. But if you're on the periphery, then you're on the periphery. You're never really penetrating. So schools among the great works in our society. What is that canon? And I know there's all sorts of challenges. Well, you know, there's old white men and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, let's have those rigorous debates about what should be in and what should be out of what every kid in our country should know. So it all starts there. And it's almost trite. And yet, you know, in New York City, for example, again, there's a cap on charter schools. If you had an idea to start a great school in a district where only 2% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college, you couldn't do it. And so these things seem obvious, and yet we have enshrined into law the very barriers that are impeding young people to get on the first basic rung of success. So now you have in the past and are continuing to build schools in addition to being academically rigorous, but around things like teaching the success sequence, now teaching the cardinal virtues. And again, I think, as I mentioned before, you and I have been in places where you've sort of given this idea to the room and uh, education confabs, people perhaps have looked askance at it. But what I'm curious for you is not what those folks think, but you have to go out and talk to parents and convince them to go. These are schools of choice. They have to go there. I would love to know when you meet with a parent or a community meeting, or when you talk about this, say, hey, this is what we want to teach kids. What is their reaction? Yeah, it's so great because this introduces the whole concept of gatekeepers, right? Because it's the gatekeepers who are the ones who are at those education meetings with you and I, and they hear the success sequence. Wait, what? Wait, what? You can't teach this to these kids. You're trying to impose middle class values. Like, well, yeah, I am kind of, I am kind of guilty, I guess. No, but you can't do that. You'll be insulting them, you know. Their parents likely didn't follow these steps, so somehow you'll be ostracizing them. But here's the thing. When I talk to parents, you know, because we got this pushback when we were teaching this content or, you know, or attempting to teach it at eighth grade, you know, we said, okay, well, then let's meet with parents. And in my anecdotal conversations, what was so interesting was that, you know, I said, look, you've chosen our schools. I mean, you entered a lottery to enter our schools, right? Because you wanted something that we were putting forth. And you chose our schools because you knew we were going to have rigorous math and science and reading and college visits and all this stuff. But you also chose us because you wanted us to ensure that your kid understands the kinds of decisions that will make a huge difference in their life. And guess what? There is this thing called the success sequence. And regardless of what you may have decided in your own life, this is the data associated with the success sequence. We're not going to be teaching this in a prescriptive way. We're going to be teaching it in a descriptive way, meaning that here's one pathway. You know, these are the likely rewards, consequences associated with this series of life decisions. But if you make decisions in this order, here are the likely consequences, right? Because ultimately you choose. And the feedback that we got from parents was, thank God someone is teaching my kid about these things because I wish someone had taught me when I was growing up. That's when I realized, you know what? Screw these gatekeepers. Seriously, they're the ones who become the self-appointed arbiters of what's right and what's wrong for these you know, marginalized people. Well, you know what? Let's speak to the very people that we're all seeking to serve and see what they want their kids to learn. You know, It's similar to the whole defund the police conversation. Like, 
I don't know, most parents who live in communities with police, they want to feel safe. They want their kids to be able to go to school, you know, without being fearful of being hurt in some way. And most parents want the ability to choose a great school for their kid. And they want their kid to learn the things about life that they know are so important. So that's been my experience. Quick story, when I spoke to kids, you know, when we were designing Vertex Partnership Academies, this International Baccalaureate High School we're launching, I visited, you know, great high schools and I went to New Orleans and visited this classroom of ninth graders in a very low-income part of New Orleans, almost all Black and Hispanic and Asian kids, but almost all low-income because I was grappling with these issues at the time. And I said, you know, I'm in New York and we're designing a high school, but I want to ask you, because I've been having some challenges here, if I were to tell you that there's information that when kids like you, 97% of the time, make decisions in a certain fashion, you would avoid poverty. Would you want to know that? And, you know, <laughs> you know, students looked at me and said, well, yeah, well, you know, why wouldn't? Of course we want to know. And I said, well, there's some grown-ups who think that, you know, if I tell you, you might be insulted or you might not be ready. And, you know, better that I just don't speak about it at all. And they looked at me like I was crazy, right? These are ninth graders. They said, wait, why would you not tell us? Why, why, why? And of course, and so we proceeded to have this discussion about the success sequence and the different pathways of decision-making, what the likely rewards or consequences are. And at the end of it, I really felt that these students, they felt like they had been respected as future decision-makers in their own life right? You know, we're educators. We're trying to cultivate young men and women who are empathetic, intelligent decision makers of their own life. That's what we do. And so these experiences remind me of why we do this work in the first place. Young people have the right to have access to that information so they can know what's right for them. And so that's the reaction I get. Ignore the gatekeeper. I mean, listen to them, see whatever grain of truth there might be but then speak to the very people themselves, the families and the students. I think we'll find that there's often a clash between what the gatekeepers say and what the real constituents say about what they want. Yeah, it struck me as so funny of like, wait, which one of those is patronizing? To say, <laughs> I'm not going to tell people what I think is true because I don't think that they're capable of handling it or telling people the truth is best, right? I never... And it was also the hilarious thing is always, how dare you tell these children the exact same things that I tell my children? And how dare you tell them to follow the exact path that I and all of my friends took and where we are right now? <laughs> so it's like, what is that? Yeah. Honestly, this is at a national scale. I mean, I'll take it up a level. You know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the lead author of the New York Times 1619 Project, you know, which paints America as this you know, fundamentally racist country, you know, the founding principles were false when they were written, you know, all of that. She wrote an 8,000 word essay in the New York Times Magazine called What We Are Owed. And it's a treatise on how basically black people have been persecuted and the racial wealth gap can never be closed without reparations. And she literally says, you know, $15 trillion reparations program. She says, quote, it doesn't matter what a black person does. Doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you buy a home, 
It doesn't matter if you save. None of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering, unquote, in her words. I mean, first of all, think about a teacher who embraces the 1619 Project and starts sending that message to kids. I mean, talk about hopelessness. But here's the thing. Nicole Hannah-Jones has done all four of those things in her own life to lead a very prosperous life, right? And good for her. But we cannot stand here and then not tell young people that they have that within their grasp too, that those choices exist for them. And that, no, 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 there's some larger system that you have no choice. You know, That's what really frustrates me. And that's why, honestly, I've written my book amongst many reasons, but I got to counter these gatekeepers who say one thing, but then do something very different in their own lives. And then, by the way, that's something very different in their own lives usually has to do with the tenet of family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. So preach what you practice in your own life. Come on, let's not do a disservice to young people by withholding from them the very information that is so crucial to lead a prosperous life. So your last E is entrepreneurship. You mentioned it there. So explain that bit, the kind of bow that comes to your whole four-point <laughs> yeah. plan, ties it all together. Yeah. yeah, it's like the pot of gold, you know, at the end of the rainbow. Because, you know, entrepreneurship, it's not a pillar in the same way that family, religion, and education are. However, if you have been able to form a strong family, if you have a strong faith commitment, if you got a great education, especially by having school choice, you are now much more likely not only to work because, you know, work is part of entrepreneurship, but also you are now more likely to be an informed risk taker. So entrepreneurship is about your vocation. And it's also about problem solving. You know, so like Booker T. Washington, founder of Tuskegee Institute during Jim Crow era, was very frustrated at the state of education for Black kids. It was completely segregated. It was pretty terrible, right? For many, many reasons. And rather than just shout in the rain, he said, look, you know what? I want to build a network of exceptional schools, especially for the Black community. So he partnered with Julius Rosenwald, who at the time was the CEO of the Sears Roebuck Company. And together, they built 5,000 schools, so I think 14 states in the South, exclusively for Black kids. And, you know, John Lewis and Maya Angelou, and the data just shows the dramatic increases in academic achievement and reading are off the charts. And this incredible example of entrepreneurship, even in the face of Jim Crow segregation. And I just think these are the kinds of actions one takes when you have build the foundation, strong family, strong faith commitment, strong educational outcomes, usually leads to this idea of an entrepreneurial life where you have control, or at least you understand what you can control so that your environment around you isn't dictating to you the quality of your life, but that you are still able to drive forward. And so, you know, that's what I want. Again, entrepreneurship in many ways is the payoff. It's a thing where if you do those first three pillars right, you're now equipped with a whole different set of tools to lead your life in the direction that you'd like. Well, Ian, I think I've kept you for way longer than I said I would. And that was strictly, I will tell you, for entirely selfish reasons. I honestly don't really care about this podcast going out because I just had <laughs> such a wonderful time chatting with you. So thank you so much for taking even more time than I asked of you to come on the podcast today. Well, this is great, Mike. Very great. 
and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, like I said at the beginning, I wish we had much more time to talk. There were so many things, so many questions that I had for Ian about his sort of experience. I would love to do just like a whole podcast of him working at MTV because <laughs> he was like, he was at MTV and like the time in my life when MTV was important to me. So I was like, I would love to know that whole story, but obviously we didn't have time to get into that and all the interesting stuff. We'll have to have him back on the podcast after his new schools are up and running. And I imagine he will have any number of entertaining and hilarious stories to tell. As we mentioned on the podcast a couple of times, just to reiterate, his book is Agency, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. I've checked it out right now. It's on Amazon. You can buy it in any number of different places. So definitely check it out. Thanks so much to Ian for being on the podcast and for being so open to allowing the conversation to go in any number of different directions. As always, please subscribe to this podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on any number of different places. Give us a nice five-star rating. I would really appreciate that. I think that sort of bumps it up in the search queue, helps people understand it a bit better. And as always, I'm looking for people to interview on this podcast. A lot of the people that come on the podcast are because people send me an email and say, hey, I'm doing this interesting thing. I listen to the podcast. I'm doing something interesting. Do I qualify? And I'm like, yeah, actually, that is super cool. We should talk about it. Or their child goes to a school or they read about something. They say, check it out. So you are kind of my crowdsourced resource for figuring out who to interview on the podcast. So please give me a shout. If you know, shoot me an email, hit me up on Twitter and let me know because I'd love to talk to them. As always, also, I think that's like the third time I've said as always, but I'll say the fourth. As always, I really want to thank Jacob Vinson, our podcast producer, who stitches all of this stuff together and fixes any technical problems. Really appreciate all the hard work that he does on this. And I look forward to chatting again with all of you on another episode of What's Up or any of the other sort of Ed Choice Chats podcasts that I do. Thanks so much. Take care.